Call her how it is. Hendrix. I promise you, swag, swag. Yeah, bitch. Only two full months left to go until college football kicks off here in 2017, and now three full months until Penn State arrives on September 2nd. This is episode number six of the Lions 24-7 podcast. Andrew Callahan alongside Sean Fitz, talking Nittany Lions football and recruiting as always. And we enter June with a change for Penn State in the 247 composite rankings with their current class. They move from number three up to number two. Uh, and I think the big headliner there is Justin Fields, five-star quarterback, Still somehow keeps rising. Yeah, uh, rivals woke up. Uh, ranked Justin Fields <laughs> as a five star this week. Um, yeah, I think he's they're the last uh, last train to pull into the station on that one because Justin Fields just a phenomenal player. Um, moves up in the composite. He actually moved up on the twenty four seven sports rankings to number two overall behind Trevor Lawrence out of Georgia, who's a heck of a quarterback as well. Going to Clemson. Yeah, two two top players in the country are quarterbacks in Georgia. Right now, neither of them going to Georgia, which is uh, which is a really interesting storyline. But we talk Penn State here. Um, right now, Penn State moved ahead of Ohio State very slightly. Ohio State's going to catch him, pass him. It's a phenomenal class they're putting out together in Columbus. Um, so, you know, Penn State will be at, uh, at number two for a while or in the top five. And I think that's where you want to be heading into the summer. Uh, five top 100 kids. Justin Fields, of course, number six overall. Ricky Slade, number 26. Justin mm-hmm. Shorter, number 46. And rising. This kid has had a phenomenal spring. Going to continue to show what he can do at the opening finals this summer. I'm excited to see how high he can climb. I think he's got five-star potential. I think just he's a phenomenal prospect. Wow. 6'4", 220. Goes and gets the ball. 4'5", kid. I think he's got the, the total package when you're looking at a wide receiver. Uh, we talked last week about him being invited to the Under Armour game. Also has the Army Bowl uh, invite in his back pocket to Ceiling as high as anybody in this class mm-hmm. uh, at, at wide receiver. Uh, Nana Asidu, uh, 59 overall. Zach Kuntz, number 90. Zach Kuntz won a, a track state gold, uh, state track gold uh, medal in the 110 hurdles this week. Also got medals in the 300 hurdles and the high jump. Uh, phenomenal weekend for him, as well as Journey Brown, who we don't have on the list to talk about here, but 10 4 3. That's a, that's it's quite a state the, record. It's a state record. Leroy Burrell, well, just one of the fastest guys in American history. And Journey Brown beat him, which <laughs> that's, that's saying something. Heck of a late grab by Penn State. Of course, uh, don't know what he's going to bring to the table as a running back because that's a stock backfield right there. But right. Journey Brown, uh, a lot to like. He's a guy that can can get onto that roster, can cover kicks for you, can play running back, can can do a lot of things. And uh, for a guy that they picked up in January, uh, it's looking like a pretty good pickup so far. Yeah, and especially considering you know covering kicks, but also potentially returning punts, returning kicks. I think he should get a look there. You know, come summer camp and at least see what he can do. He's obviously going to be behind the guys who enrolled early or have been on the team and, and been returning for Penn State for a couple of seasons. But, I mean, with that straight line speed, and obviously he's elusive enough to, to get around people coming into the backfield as a running back, uh, he'll get a shot there. And, you know, if he, if he makes the most of it, could see some real game time. Yeah, and the knock on him's competition, so I think it's going to be a big jump. Uh, Meadville's a 5A school, but the, the competition up where he's at uh, leaves a little bit to be desired. So it's, it, we'll see how he makes that jump in football and academics. And mm-hmm. and I, I have him as a red shirt right now, but he's certainly athletic enough to play right away. So yeah. um, getting back to, to what we were actually talking about, um, Justin Fields' ranking just keeps going up. He's at the Elite 11 this week. Um, Penn State's got a brief history there. Um, uh, Sean Clifford was there last year. Christian Hackenberg was there. Rob Bolden was there. Um, so they've, got, they've had some guys come through that. And uh, Premier quarterback camp in the country yep. the semifinals are this week the the finalists will go on to the opening in Oregon at the end of June into July I don't think there's any doubt Fields is going to be in that group uh 
just a phenomenal quarterback. Penn State's got to hold on to him. Uh, everybody in the South is coming after him. We talked about that ad nauseum. So, um, you know, speaking of that camp, Penn State, uh, or excuse me, speaking of fields, Penn State will be in Georgia on uh, Friday, actually today, when the podcast comes out uh, for the Mercer camp. Uh, Fields will will be out in California for the Elite 11, so they're not going to overlap there. But uh, yeah, it's camp season. Uh, it's June. It's uh, getting uh, over that little May hiatus that we that we always see in Georgia. Friday, they come back to Penn State on Saturday for the first Elite camp of the year. Head to Tennessee on Sunday. We'll be at Old Dominion next week and a couple other stops along the way. So. What I get back to the satellite camp has been such a big deal over the last couple of years. Of course, James Franklin, uh, you know, going down to Stetson and Georgia State a couple of years ago, uh, ruffled some feathers, but then Jim Harbaugh just completely took it to a Harbaugh level. Yeah, and so, I think that's the thing too. If you're following on a very surface level, I mean, satellite camps is kind of known as to be this point of tension among you know big time coaches, and I think there's there's value in it for everybody, but it, it depends on, of course, your approach. Yeah, absolutely, and it's a lot of it's more PR than anything. I mean, Michigan yeah. Michigan did benefit from those satellite camps last year but you think about all the headlines uh that that Jim Harbaugh got that Michigan got for for just being there mm-hmm. I think that's a big deal for when you're trying to market your program brand your program what benefit has Penn State seen from it uh some uh probably more than you would think uh they've, they've seen new prospects uh Yitor Matos was a guy that they offered at Old Dominion back in I think 2015 um, Nana Asidu, uh, a guy we talked about earlier, is, was at that camp as a tight end defensive end, as a rising sophomore. So you start to see these guys. Matt Kippenhammer was the, the poster child last year. They offered him uh, after a strong showing at the Bowling Green camp. Um, so you're not going to offer a ton of kids at these camps, but you're going to see enough to know uh, if they can make it onto your list, whether you have to circle back around to them late. And, and um it, it also gives you a chance to, to cash in on those relationships. We've seen them in, in Georgia and in Florida. Um, they've, they've been out to Detroit, uh, mm-hmm. Chicago, just uh, New Jersey last year was a big one uh, last year all around. So you get a chance to see these guys and, and cultivate these relationships. Mike Miranda worked out at uh, Bowling Green last year. A couple other commits have, have worked out at these camps. Um, you have Jahan Dotson, who worked out at the Jersey camp last year, had a decent relationship with him going into it, got to work with Josh Gaddis, which I think is a big deal. These kids don't have to pile in a car or a van and drive four or five hours to get to Penn State to work, to the, to, to work out with the staff. So I think that's a huge deal. The benefits of it long term. Yeah, I'm kind of on the fence about uh, you know how big of a benefit it is, but I think uh, with the rules like they are right now, which you get 10 days to work camps, whether mm-hmm. that's satellite, whether that's on campus, you get 10 days in June and July to work them. I think you got to do them, and and this is the way to go. Uh, it keeps that number at low, but it also rewards those teams that go out and and, and do it the right way. Right, and I think it, you know the benefit too can't be measured in any singular um, you know way. You know, it depends not only on your program, but also the value, and you might not get the quantity of kids you might. Uh, hope to expect from these camps but if you get a couple you know unearthing you know some diamonds in the rough as you like to say or kids who might be ranked lower that you got a good look at get to work in hands-on and see how they interact which is so much of you know we got to see how they got on campus and that's partly how they'll deal with the competition and also interact with the coaches like if you get to know a kid personally and work them at one of these camps I mean that's that tells you a lot right up front yeah and I don't know how many prospects have mentioned to me maybe uh down south that they worked with Franklin and, and and Sean Spencer or somebody else on the staff when they were at Vanderbilt and these camps le- left a lasting impression. And at Vanderbilt, you had to find those guys that weren't, you know, those bona fide studs that mm-hmm. uh, you could cultivate relationships with as sophomores or 2019 and 2020 are going to be the real focus for the Penn State as they head on the road for, uh, 
for these recruiting uh, stops. And Northern Illinois, Ricky Ronnie's got uh, you know contacts all over Chicago. He's been their Chicago recruiter. Tim Banks as well also spent time at, at Illinois. Uh, Murfreesboro at Middle Tennessee State, obviously the connection there uh, with with Nashville is a big time. And Georgia, they've been a, a, a they've been able to pluck a couple players from there. I mean, one of their best players, Blake Gillikin, uh, was not a satellite camp guy, but got a chance to come out and meet the meet the family. I believe I think that was a big deal for him. Uh, moving on with recruiting. Penn State had Rasheed Walker on campus last weekend, offensive tackle. I uh, believe he's in the top 100 now with the latest uh, ranking shuffling. Uh, Walker is is one of the top guys on their board as an offensive tackle. I put in a 24-7 sports crystal ball pick for, for Penn State last week. Been on the fence about that for a while now, but you know it, to show um, the initiative to get up to Penn State again, uh, I believe this is the second time this spring. On his own dime, um, you know the the rumblings have always been there that Penn State's high on his list. But mm-hmm. yeah, it brought mom up, which in recruiting, mom mom runs the show most of the time, <laughs> as it should be. Yep. And uh, yeah, I mean, you bring mom up, but you have a great visit, and you know you'll see what comes of that. Uh, I don't, no, we weren't we weren't expecting a commitment this weekend, but Penn State sets itself up well in the long run uh, to 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 get uh, Rasheed Walker, who's just a a great looking uh, offensive tackle prospect. So other news that came out this week is that some point spreads and some kickoff times for four more Penn State games, uh, most notably Pitt, Ohio State, and then the other two, Northwestern Rutgers, are both going to be noon kicks. Rutgers is at home homecoming this year. Northwestern is also going to be noon uh, in early October. Ohio State, when Penn State goes to pay them a visit, you know, as of right now, uh, they're going to be eight-point underdogs visiting the Buckeyes. It's a 3.30 kick, another 3.30 kick, Pitt in Week 2. There, Penn State will be a 19-point favorite. Looking specifically at those two games, and you can even even throw Michigan in there. Right now, Penn State a two-touchdown favorite. They'd come in in mid to late October. What stands out most to you? We'll start with point spreads. I think with Ohio State, that eight-point point spread, obviously uh, the shoe is, is as difficult as a place to play as anywhere in the country. Penn State has probably had more success than anybody um, out there, but still, it's Ohio State. They're going to be a good football team. I think when you look at that eight-point spread, it, it, it it's probably going to change a little bit, slide down toward uh, Penn State a little bit more, just just for the points that Penn State can put up. And I think Ohio State, while they will be able to put up points, uh, you know they're they're going to have trouble throwing the ball uh, and, and until Barrett comes out and shows that he can beat a team with his arm, and he can load up the box, stop Mike Weber. Um, so I think that's going to be a little bit closer. I, I no question in my mind that Ohio State will be favored just by a little mm-hmm. bit more than a touchdown. It's probably a little bit surprising. I'm going to go one week earlier to that Michigan game, which is you know 14 point favorite for Penn State right now, and I think it has a lot to do, of course, with just all the question marks. I mean, Michigan has you are bringing in at least eight new starters on each side of the ball. You know, what are those guys going to bring? And I think it'll really reveal the depth that Harbaugh and company have been able to recruit since he arrived there, going into year three now. You know, that depth is going to be tested and, and see how well they've done. You know, per the rankings, obviously the talent is there, but what have they been doing behind the scenes to better themselves and get ready? And I think you know Penn State will be coming off a bye. Um, but that 14-point spread, in my mind, has to shrink. That's, and a, I think, that's a lot of points. Yeah, it really is. And I think the other part is how that game unfolds will obviously have a huge impact because let's say that's a game that comes down to the wire, Penn State ekes one out, or even say they lose. That point spread for Ohio State, given that you're facing probably a tougher opponent the very next week and will be going on the road, I think could even sort of double digits, you know, provided Ohio State stays constant and Penn State has some trouble against Michigan, neither of which are givens. Right. But 14 points to me seems a lot for Michigan. I think that's, yeah, you're probably uh, getting a little bit too deep into it. But yeah, two touchdowns against a team that, that pretty well pounded Penn State last September. 
Um, obviously, it's going to be a different look. Um, you, you, you don't know if the quarterback play is at the level that you need it to be to win a game like that, pop, possibly a night game at Beaver Stadium in a whiteout. It's going to be mm-hmm. tough. So, yeah, I, I think Penn State wins that game. I have a tough time seeing a double-digit point spread against a team like Michigan. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, again, that sticks out to me. I don't think there's any way Penn State won't be favored barring some uh, horrible injury leading up to that kickoff. And I think fans are probably quite happy to hear neither of us uh, mention Pitt. 19-point favorites Penn State is, you know, again, right now, week two kickoff, 330. Never really know early in the season, but but for now, that seems about right. Yeah, I think so. There's plenty of holes in that Pitt team, and, and you're probably not going to know a ton about them when they come to town. But at the same time, Penn State's the more talented team. They can put up points. It's at home. That You know, revenge is, is something that's probably going to be a little bit overstated, but Penn State will, will want to get revenge on Pitt from last year. So I think that that point spread is probably about right. Right. And even if you see this as a, as a game that's close, one score at halftime, even after three quarters, you could see this quickly unfolding into one big play late, then it's a 14-point game, and then you tack on that garbage-type touchdown, and this is why Vegas keeps us all... You know, <laughs> Vegas is phenomenal. And, and I, attention to the end. I just am continually just amazed by it, the way that they can do that. I mean, it's uh, whatever. But uh, yeah, I, I think one thing we kind of glossed over, kick times. Northwestern at noon. Uh, Going to be interesting. 11 o'clock kick in Evanston. Uh, very, very tough place uh, to get going, especially 11 a.m. Got to bring your own juice, as we heard last year. Oh, there's going to be a lot of juice talk, no doubt. And I think the benefit there will be uh, coming off an Iowa game that, you know, Northwestern isn't your first road game where you're used to that routine of, you know, being obviously in the hotel somewhere else, unfamiliar, away locker room, and that, you know, it will be, um, you know, obviously a drop-off in atmosphere, but I don't think you would rather have that switched where you're going into Iowa you know, as a step up the following week with a sleepier atmosphere at Northwestern first, you know, going in in a tough spot and then dropping down, I think should be to their benefit. Yeah. And we're talking about Michigan and Ohio state, but those, that Iowa and that Northwestern game to me are huge. I mean, yeah. two, two tough, uh, tough, but very different environments to play in. Um, you know, will that Iowa game be a night game? It's tough to say, but, uh, I think that they have an opportunity to be, a, you know, upset special. Not, I don't want to call them trap games cause they're both uh, well-coached teams that, that, that have, uh, beaten top tier big teams before and Penn State in, in recent past. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think those are going to be two two games in the season that are probably overlooked, but at the same time, just incredibly, incredibly key games for Penn State. So Iowa, uh, for those who do not know, it's going to be September twenty third, Indiana between the Iowa Northwestern game. That's a September thirtieth, and then Northwestern noon kick Eastern time on October seventh. The one game before all of those. Georgia State, and you mentioned being amazed by uh, Vegas. I think we all are. What I'll be really stunned by is how they pull off this Georgia State spread, which right now is in about the 30s, uh, high 30s, as you'd expect. Now, we talked to Akron a couple of weeks ago. It's Georgia State week on the site. We're obviously not going to spend a lot of time talking about the Panthers, new to FBS. Did go to a bowl game a couple of years ago. But with what they've got returning in a new staff, I kind of, in a strange way, like this team, and perhaps even a little bit more than Akron in terms of what they're going to bring to the table. Really, really good team in terms of limiting explosive plays defensively a year ago. They'll have a new system, uh, could perhaps be a little bit more aggressive. But you've got, you know, a, a power five prospect at quarterback transfer from Utah. Now he's going to be going into his fifth year at the position. Another new system, uh, but a guy in Penny Hart, a wide receiver who missed time for them in 2015 but broke out and could be a thorn in Penn State's side if those two connect for a couple of big plays. Obviously, Penn State doesn't <laughs> leave week three with a loss, but 
it's it's kind of an intriguing team here. Yeah, anytime you get a new staff, you don't have tape, um, you know, a, a tape of that team doing what they're doing. It's going to be interesting uh, to maybe a slow start is is in order right there. But uh, yeah, Georgia State not not a great football team. Maybe some pieces here or there, but uh, breaking in a new staff that's that's an awful tall order. Thirty some points again, a lot of points, but at the same time, Penn State can put up points, and I think uh, I think they'll be right around that number. I don't know if they'll cover, I don't know if they won't, but uh, they'll be right around that number. And you you've done more Georgia State research than probably anybody outside <laughs> the Lash Building in State College here. So, uh, I, what else do they bring to the table? I mean, I, well, I just don't know to expect that much. Well, the new the new staff is led by Sean Elliott, uh, who's been a longtime offensive line coach out of South Carolina. He not, took not over. The former Spur. No, no, no. <laughs> Good player, overrated, uh, underrated. <laughs> It would player. be a real shock of the season yeah. when we had the former Spurs, Sean Elliott, trot out with a headset. Um, but no, he used to coach offensive line out of South Carolina. In 2015, took over for the Gamecocks when Steve Spurrier said, see you midway through the year. Uh, hung on for you know the next season when Mil- Muschamp came in and overtook the helm. But a guy who, you know, thus far, it sounds a lot like a football coach, which sounds silly until I tell you that all spring it's been, we're going to block and we're going to tackle, we're going to be physical, we're going to play together. Now, he has acknowledged openly that this is a team without a lot of talent, so I think that's absolutely the right way to go about things. You know, before you can go on to win, you can't do things that will generate losing, and that would be namely missed blocks and missed tackles. So I think they've got a defense, again, really good at limiting explosive plays, which I think intrigues me for a Penn State offense that relied so much on the explosive play a year ago. Uh, However, pretty poor against the run. And so I think... They're a team that unquestionably is going to have to load up in the box against Saquon Barkley and then rely on their corners in one-on-one situations against Penn State. Probably will not you know, lend itself to success uh, over a couple of quarters, perhaps initially keeps it close. Connor Manning, the quarterback I referenced earlier, Utah transfer, and Penny Hart, the receiver, you should really keep an eye on. Again, missed all of last season, but 2015 uh, was super dynamic and helped lead them to a bowl game. So Georgia State also, perhaps even most importantly, Last year went into Madison and scared the living hell out of Wisconsin in an eventual 23-17 win that forced the Badgers to switch quarterbacks. Now, they didn't really settle for the rest of the season, but they went into Madison two weeks after the Badgers beat LSU. You know, that game was in Green Bay, but really took it to them. I think that will be a talking point we hear nonstop from Penn State coaches leading up to kickoff. Uh, in week three you have done your research on georgia state and i commend you for it man i got nothing better to do (laughs) wow Um, but this does lead to a question again you know penn state is expected to be three and oh after these first three weeks you mentioned akron it's going to be pitt and georgia state then they head into iowa on september 23rd and right now you know we're all about the question marks in this roster as you typically are during the summer and things that they need to solve you have to answer you must do this so for me, the question isn't so much, what do you need to know by week one or even week two or week three? Pitt obviously is somewhat of a threat, but what do you need to know by the time you go on the road and you not only just go on the road, but walk into Kinnick Stadium? And I'll get my answer out quickly, uh, is that you need to have your communication settled along the offensive line. They return a lot, but right now you've got about eight guys in contention for first team time. I'm sure they're going to see some sort of rotation no matter how summer goes in the first three weeks, but when the noise and all that, you know what, hits the fan, you know, you've got to be able to ready to communicate. And I, I think right now it's an unknown just because of how things are. Yeah, and I, I look to the defensive side of the ball. How deep is your rotation going to be? Can you go with six defensive ends? So you got questions there with Shane Simmons and with, with uh, Shaka Tony. You look uh, behind them. You want to get Cam Brown. You want to get Jarvis Miller, those reps at the outside linebackers. We saw last year, those guys are one play away. I mean, and, yeah. and as thin as they are at linebacker, of course, you have some versatility with Jason Cabinda and Brandon Smith can play anywhere. Um, but, uh, yeah, you've got an opportunity to, to get Cam Brown, to get Jarvis Miller, 
um, some some reps there at outside linebacker, and I think that can really benefit them as well as safety. We've talked about safety too much uh, so far. You get Nick Scott, you get Aaron Monroe, um, those reps as well, and and you wonder if they're going to be guys that are going to be pushing for a starting spot at that point, starting at that point, or just you know you 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 sort of. Uh, reserve yourself to Marcus Allen and Troy Apke. So uh, a lot of questions about depth more so on the defensive side of the ball. Mm-hmm. think this can be a good defense. Don't think it's going to be a great defense, but think this can be a good defense um, if they can continue to build that depth and, depth and see where they're at uh, going into week four. And I think that will be, you know, speaking of communication, the defensive side, you've got guys up the middle who have been there, you know, on the D-line, Cawthorn and Cawthorn Law Firm, and you got Jason Kabinda and then Marcus Allen behind him. So up the middle, I think all those calls should be made and should be A-OK. Um, but you, you know, mentioned I think pass rush obviously will be a point of emphasis there because the offensive lines, you know, Pitt's been pretty good, but they're replacing some guys. Iowa's offensive line, a veteran group, they're better in the run game than they are in pass protection. But there are going to be a couple must-have third downs you have to figure in that game where it says, Who's going to come up and make the sack that we need? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you got away with uh, beating Iowa with speed last year. I think you can do it again this year. Not a tremendously fast team, but you know Penn State uh, controlled the perimeter last year, and we're able to do that on both sides of the ball. So I think that you know heading into Iowa, you don't want to rely on that too heavily. You want to be more of a you know a well-oiled machine at that point, which mm-hmm. anybody wants to be at that point in the season. But yeah, you get those things down, you, you got a real shot at uh, at doing something special. Now, as we mentioned, this has been Georgia State week on the site, but because, uh, you know, it's Georgia State and we all assume that you assume it's going to be a win, we've had to sprinkle in some other things on to keep your attention. One of those was I finally put together all the passing charts that I kept for Trace McSorley and every single tale of the tape that we did on the site this year and compiled it for the entire year. So this was 14. It looks at his success throwing the ball uh, to the left, to the middle, to the right, behind the line of scrimmage from 0 to 10 yards, 10 to 19, and then 20 yards or more downfield. So you can go on the site, check out that piece now. A couple of things I wanted to touch upon here, though, that stuck out to me looking overall his stats. 58% for the season overall, all those areas that I mentioned, but 60% throwing from 0 to 9 yards. Now, he didn't throw an interception from 0 to 9 yards all season, but that mark stood out to me because not only did it speak to well, they obviously had great success throwing the ball downfield, completion percentage-wise, and, and how many times they scored doing that. But the you know completion percentage in an area where it, it shouldn't be gimmies, but they're kind of close, was a little bit lower than expected. Yeah, and that was the, the, the criticism of Christian Hackenberg. Couldn't throw the short ball, and I don't know what his numbers were. Probably lower than that, I would assume. Yes. But you, you'd think McSorley would be a little bit higher than 60%. Uh, yeah, I, I just look at that overall 58% and see that 60% number and just think, man, this guy completed a lot of balls down the field last year. And uh, will you have those 50-50 balls again this year? Obviously, you had Chris Godwin last year. who was phenomenal. Um, you've got Gesicki coming back. You've mm-hmm. got Juwan Johnson, Blacknell on the outside, who who can be deep ball threats as well. Um, you know, will they hit at that same rate? It's tough to say, but, um, you know, if they do, that that that, that I think that short uh, intermediate completion percentage is going to go up. So you, you're going to see those numbers, I think, rise this year. Speaking of the deep ball, on passes 20 yards or more down the field, Trace McSorley completed just under 45% of those, 44.68%. That's still a good number. It's quite good. And the yardage, you know, again, going from left, middle, and right on these passes deep downfield was pretty split evenly. But when you look at passes, again, deep downfield that were straight down the middle, he actually completed well beyond 50% of those passes, 13 to 22. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just... Some of those numbers are just sort of uh, tough to wrap your head around. It's like three-point shooting in basketball. I mean, you're not going to hit them all, obviously, but you're going to hit at a certain clip, and if you hit that certain clip, you're great. Uh, And Trace McSorley last year, especially 
the end of the season, was was very good at that. Right, and we'll get you out on one more before we have uh, stat and number overload here. The only two games in which Penn State threw four or fewer passes, you know, that were 20 yards or more downfield, so just say fewer or fewer deep balls. You want to guess what games those were? I have no idea. Pitt and Michigan. Huh, how about that? Two losses, only two in the regular season. So that wraps it up. Trace McSorley's 2016 passing chart you can check out on the site here. Again, breakdowns for all levels of the field, you know, horizontally uh, and vertically. Moving on towards the end, we've got our segment continuing on with the mailbag. We ask folks on the Lions 24-7 board what's on their mind. We put it on the table. First question up, uh, who is your sack leader for Penn State in 2017? Sharif Miller. I don't. Uh, that was really fast. That was really quick. <laughs> he's just. I think he's got all the potential to be the guy that goes to the to to the next level um, as a pass rusher this year. Uh, we overlook Torrance Brown at times. He can get to the quarterback as well, and of course, uh, you know Brent Pry will bring linebackers at time. But I think Miller is the guy that takes that big step this year. Had a great spring. Mm-hmm. Um, has really filled out. Um, I I have him slotted starting opposite Brown, so he's going to have the opportunity to do so. I know you like a couple of guys. I'm sure you're going to bring up Kevin Givens at this point, but uh, no, I. I I like Sharif Miller as the guy that can get to the quarterback. Maybe not a 10-sack guy, but uh, I think there'll be numbers spread out throughout the season, and and we'll see Sharif Miller end on top. You are correct in that I'm going to bring up Kevin Givens, but i got to say this is being treated like a Mike Miranda-level kind of attention or crush here. I don't don't think I've gotten there quite there with with, uh, Kevin Givens. But speaking of number 30, in terms of his tackles last year, nearly 30% of them occurred in the backfield. And I think for a guy who only played a third of snaps last year, again, people saw him as a starter early in the season, had so much hype in the offseason, is a very good player. But in terms of his you know, production per play, he was higher than anyone else in the roster for defensive linemen. And I think four and a half sacks this year could almost double. You know, It doesn't have to double his playing time, but could double next season. Yeah, I mean, he's got the opportunity. As far as an interior guy, you're not going to get those numbers that, most of the time. But Kevin Givens made so many plays in the backfield, and he also missed a lot of plays in the backfield. I mean, this is a yeah. guy that was back there pretty regularly. You know, didn't always bring down the ball carrier. Could flush the quarterback and elsewhere. But, yeah, he's got the opportunity to, to make plays in the backfield. If he converts, he can certainly have a, as good of a sack number as, as pretty much any defensive tackle in recent memory. Got, guys that we omitted, uh, Shane Simmons, Shaka Tony, obviously we don't we don't know uh, exactly what to expect yet. But, obviously, they're, they're pass rushers coming in. We'll have opportunities, presumably, on third down, perhaps even more so, depending on the rotations. And then, you know, sleeper picks. You know, I talked a lot this offseason about the tackles for loss that Manny Bowen and Koa Farmer were able to combine for more than Jason Kambinda and, and Brandon Bell a year ago. And I think that lends itself, obviously, to the scheme, but also the speed and explosiveness that each of them brings. So, yeah, and, and Brandon Bell, four sacks last year, obviously played uh, Sam and Will. Coe mm-hmm. Farmer, I think, is going to have the opportunity to get after the quarterback. That's what he does well. He's done it uh, in the spot duty that he's had, uh, made some big plays late in the season last year when he was asked to step in. So Farmer, I think if you're looking at linebackers, and I know Bowen can get to the quarterback as well, if you're looking at linebackers, I think Farmer's the guy. Yes, yeah, no question. Three sacks a year ago, 29 tackles total, four and a half of those occurred in the backfield. Uh, not quite Kevin Givens' rate, but we're, we're getting close. Uh, next question. People want to know what's more likely to occur next season, a Marcus Allen interception or a punt or kickoff return going for a touchdown? I think Marcus Allen's going to get his pick. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's been so long coming. Uh, teams are going to have to throw the ball against Penn State. Um, especially early in the season. So, you know, I'd love to see it. Um, he, he's, he's worked on those coverage skills. I think he's going to have an improved senior year. I think he's going to be a guy that, uh, you know, starts popping up on these watch lists and, and, and things like that. So 
I think Marcus Allen, uh, <laughs> just a guy who probably going to have a, a complicated legacy at Penn State because a lot of people just see him as the guy that always wants to go for the big hit. I think he's going to end up, uh, what, third in, in tackles all time at Penn State, and that's saying something. So I think he's a, a much better all-around player. I still think he needs to improve a good bit, but he's, he's a much better all-around player than people give him credit for. Absolutely, and I think the number you mentioned, you know, could be third in tackles, or you know, that that zero number for interceptions certainly looms. How about seven hundred and seventy-four? Those were the defensive reps he took. You know, penalties excluded a year ago, where you think about, oh, you know, you played three seasons, you started so much, haven't had a pick. Seven hundred and seventy-four plays without a, a ball. I, I think it is likely that he gets an interception this year, but I think the longer drought has been this punt and kickoff return. Penn State special teams took a gigantic step. Year ago, I think that continues. Charles, Charles Huff's done a really good job. He he, he, yes. he deserves credit. Yes, and, and I think that will you know come to to bear some scoring fruit. You know, perhaps even early in the season against the Georgia State, who had terrible special teams a year ago. Uh, Akron also in that mix. <laughs> I forget more. you've done all the research yeah, on these you. teams. I mean, if you want to take the baton for Iowa next week, by all means. I mean, I got to schedule my vacation here sooner rather. Than it's later. all you, buddy. All you. <laughs> um, but I, but I think they're going to get that return touchdown. I, and I would you know perhaps save uh, bold predictions at, for. Uh, just before the season starts, I think it could very well happen in September, but you're going to see uh, Penn State and Indy Lion with the ball in their hands after kickoff uh, or punt return in the end zone. Most importantly, in that first stretch, they've got to not allow a kickoff return touchdown against Pitt because Henderson yes. just tore him up last year. Um, you know, you got to contain him, and I think that's probably the most important thing to come out of this, even though I think we've brought him up on every podcast this year. I think that's the most important thing when you're talking about containing Pitt. Uh, you're going to have the opportunity to keep Henderson in check. And, you know, with the, with the way that they've uh, built this roster, they've got guys now that uh, are a little bit faster covering kicks. No disrespect to the guys in the last couple of years covering on the coverage unit, but it's nearly all scholarship guys out there, a couple mm-hmm. of walk-ons that, that, that get in there and, and bust some heads, but and Joey Julius, of course. But, yes. uh, yeah, you, you've got more athletic guys covering kicks, and anytime that happens, you've got a better opportunity to keep those guys inside their own 20-25. And if you can do that against Henderson, you've done a really good job because he's a phenomenal player. Yeah, we'll be talking about him plenty uh, come week two, as we did last week for Pit Preview Week. Now, to wrap up the sixth episode of the Lions 24-7 podcast in this mailbag, this is something you just mentioned to me before we started, and that uh, it's going to be a real down year for 2019 recruiting in Pennsylvania. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Penn, Penn State right now, zero offers to prospects in the 2019 class in Pennsylvania. Uh, to put that number into perspective, last year at this time they'd offered ten. So now the the, the class of 2018 in Pennsylvania is is pretty top heavy. A lot of talent to, there at the, in the top ten, twelve of that class. But at the same time, I mean that's that's a big disparity right yeah. there. Um, one player right now in the top 24/7, Omar Spates from down in Philly, who's kind of a tweener, a defensive end, outside linebacker, heck of a football player. But uh, you, you just don't you don't see any bona fide guys that are early offer types and. And I think you look around the region, and they're going to have trouble, um, you know, not have trouble because I think it's going to be another good cycle for them. They're going to be have, have trouble building their base of this class out of Pennsylvania, Jersey, Maryland, uh, maybe even Virginia as well. Uh, of course, New York and, and, and New England is kind of a crapshoot when you're talking about talent coming out of there. But okay, no. no off. Oh, I don't mean to <laughs> no, offend New England. I'm, I'm well aware. Yeah. But um, no offers in Pennsylvania. Five in New Jersey, which is, I think, that core of, of guys that they're going to go after. Antonio Alfano, Nyquie Hawkins, uh, Ronnie Hickman, Caden Wallace, 
those are guys that they're going to have to hit on. Um, they've offered three kids in Maryland, two in D.C., four in Virginia. So the numbers aren't that high right now. Um, and, and I think when you talk about the 2019 class, if Penn State can have a season like they had a year ago where they are a national prominent, uh, prominent uh, of national prominence on the field, you've got an opportunity to expand your footprint. And that's what they're going to have to do. They're going to have to get uh, into the Carolinas. Keep going after kids in Texas. Keep going after kids in Florida and Georgia and and the Midwest and and sort of make it. Uh, maybe you can't take an Ohio State approach to it just yet, but at the same time, you want to get these kids from everywhere, like Ohio State has been able to do, like mm-hmm. Michigan has been able to do, Notre Dame has been able to get kids up north and in from California. Tough to get to state college, no doubt about it. But at the same time, when you're winning, you're going to see those kids start to make it to state college. So. 2019, going to need to expand that national footprint. Not a great year in terms of uh, regional talent, especially in Pennsylvania. And they, and they will end up offering some guys from Pennsylvania and, and, and the region. But at the same time, you've got a, a challenge on your hands in the 2018 cycle. And uh, you're going to need to play well this year to make yourself that national product that gets these top uh, top kids in from all over the country. So Penn State up to number two as we cross into June in terms of the 2018 classes nationally. Uh, looks like it'll be a lot more work to be done to get back to that sort of ranking for 2019. Again, real down year for 2019 Pennsylvania recruiting, which is really interesting to me. But uh, looking ahead to next week, Episode 7, Sean is going to bring all the Iowa research, which I'm really pumped for that. That sounds like <laughs> something that I will definitely get on. As, as we uh, break down the Hawkeyes, people forget, you know, as much as Penn State really kind of brought the wood to them a year ago, you know, was an eight-win team. Yeah, and they turned around and beat Michigan the next week. I mean, yeah. That was uh, as big of a stunner in the Big Ten as there was uh, all year, I think. Yeah. So, should be a fun week, and we will catch you then.